Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 89, recorded on December 3rd of 2019. Uh, this is the podcast where you know I've, I get to geek out about photography, about technology, about all the geekery in the photo industry that we can come up with, whether it be something controversial, something uh, overly technical. Uh, we dive into it. And we try to dissect it as much as possible. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, always joined by a co-host that rotates, and I'm actually quite excited to invite back to the podcast uh, a man that I just recorded a video with in person uh, a couple of weeks ago and aired this week, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, but I have with me today, Chris Nichols. Chris, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Don. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, always fun. Yeah, and it was great to, to meet up with you in Calgary uh, a little while ago in November to do a, a fun video on uh, ultraviolet fluorescence photography, which is, it sounds like it's a niche topic that people can't really approach or they'd never have any real interest in, but it's really approachable. All you need is some very simple equipment and uh, no special camera gear at all. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I, what really strikes me is when you look at the photos of us on Instagram or on Deep Review, you know, with the video, like my face is lit up because I'm actually having a really, really good time. It was super fun. It's one of those experiences where it's so visual and it's so magical. And um, yeah, you get you can't help but actually really have a fun time. It's like doing a science experiment as a kid. Yeah, well, except we're doing it as adults right now, and it brings exactly. that kind of childhood curiosity <laughs> right back in. And um, all you need is an ultraviolet flashlight. And we were using, uh, I think, Convoy, uh, C-O-N-V-O-Y flashlights. And uh, uh, you can you know, get ultraviolet fluorescing inks and pigments and all sorts of stuff uh, that's yeah. artificial. Or, uh, you know, flowers will often fluoresce. Minerals uh, can give off a pretty cool light show. And then you become the artist, right? And a lot of macro photography uh, is sort of artistry. Uh, it can be purely documentary. I mean, I'm doing my snowflake stuff right now as well, which is just, you know, you capture what it is and, you know, I, I don't have any hand in that design. Or you can become a, a, a sculptor of something. Uh, and then the photography comes in as a way to document your first level of artistry that had nothing to do with photography, which, which we got into a little bit when we were playing around with drops of ink in, in water, which was fun. Yeah. And, you know, like a lot of macro photography, as you say, it's you could say it's designed, right? We're, we're constructing something. We're planning things out. Uh, to some extent, you were doing that uh, with our UV light experiment. But it's also amazing how using the, the dyes, putting them in water, playing with different temperatures, a lot of it is, you know, quite uh, quite random and quite organic, right? It's really not so necessarily under your control. You just create these beautiful abstract patterns and, and capture what you capture. And there's a lot of exploration involved there. And I think that's a really fun, appealing part of this process. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to uh, uh, make it, uh, you know, sort of aware to everybody that's listening to go and check out this video. That's why we're yes. talking about it, because, um, you know, it's kind of a, a niche topic. Uh, you don't know what you don't know. So you're never going to look for it kind of thing. And uh, I'd like to get more eyeballs on that kind of work. Uh, so the link will be at the top of the show notes over at photogeekweekly.com. And uh, show us some love in the comments on that video as well, uh, mm. so that we can get more interest in that. So there, there's my uh, there's my plea to everybody for the day. <laughs> uh, but beyond that video, Chris, uh, what's been uh, what, what's been new with you in the last little while? Uh, you know, not much. We're, we're coming up to the end of the year. So for deepyourview.com, we, we have a lot of videos. It's not the kind of time period where we get a lot of new camera releases, but it is the time period where, of course, Jordan and I like to do our classic and now infamous uh, best of, worst of, end of year video. We talk about the best gear. We talk about the worst gear. Uh, we talk about trends. And most importantly, we get really 
sloshed. We just get wasted. So, uh, and, and, and I usually get to, to destroy Jordan at some sort of skill testing uh, game. Um, he hasn't beat me yet, but maybe this year. I always say that, but maybe this year. Well, uh, I should uh, should send you some beers to uh, to help out with that uh, with that effort. I think I still have your address somewhere. But um, the uh, those videos are, are fun because I, I can imagine that the pressure is on for you to to make a decision on best and worst. Well, l- last year the the Yashica Y thirty five was kind of a that was an easy one. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody would have debated that. Uh, but there are so many good cameras, and how can you you know? Uh, isolate. Yeah, it might be easy to pick like the top five and the worst five. Sure. But as soon as you distill down to what you, in your opinion, is the best and the worst, oh, the internet fury is ignited. <laughs> yeah. You build a thick skin working for deep review and looking at those forms done. So I, I'd like to think that I'm impenetrable now, but no, it still hurts deep down in my heart and in my soul. But you know, yeah, they are just opinions. And you're right. We're coming into a year, especially this year, where it was quite difficult to decide what really is the worst camera because they are really good. And, I, you know, we're not going to give away any spoilers today. I, I want people to wait for the video. But it's really going to come down to more what what designs are out of touch with where we think the market's going today. You know, there's a lot of manufacturers still trying to make cameras that – you know, maybe don't have a place or just aren't gonna aren't gonna really find a target audience. And and I think that comes down to what, you know, some of the things we're gonna be talking about today. You know, is is I think a lot of the manufacturers are, for lack of a better term, desperate to find where where is the profit still gonna be in this industry. Well, and, and you look at uh, what happened with the point and shoot cameras, right? Every sure. major manufacturer had a lineup of a dozen different options uh, at different price points, and they would refresh them every year. So yeah. this time of the year, it would be a new model for the retailers to be pushing. And that is completely gone. Uh, that, oh, yeah. that no longer exists. But uh, you might be able to apply the same logic to the traditional digital SLR market on the entry level platforms, right? So your uh, Canon Rebel series and and the, uh, um, the the four digit series from Nikon and everything else, where oh, yeah. you've got these cameras that uh, they, they do have a place. Don't get me wrong, but that place is becoming that same place that the point and shoot cameras had in terms of how the uh, the users the uh, the consumer market is approaching them. Yeah. Right? And they're just completely passing them over because uh, either they want to have something more serious or they're just going to use their phone. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems on the forums is people almost get personally offended that the gear that they're using, that they enjoy using, and that they're getting good results with, uh, you know, is is losing market or you know nobody cares about them. That's not the case. I mean, it's not so much the manufacturers trying to say your SLR is pointless, or you know that that we are trying to say SLRs aren't aren't really tenable anymore. But it's more so just these companies have to make money. I mean, that's the simple fact. Yeah. And if they're not selling cameras, they're going to disappear whether you like it or not. And it's not the first time we've gone through this transition. And, and yeah, the smartphone is absolutely playing a huge part in what we're going to be seeing going forward in the future. I mean, underwater cameras used to be popular all last year for all the fishing videos that I do, uh, you know, for fly fishing stuff. I used a Pixel 3 and I just I thrust it underwater. 
And it worked yeah. great. Yeah. And, and there was no problem. You know, I mean, other than, of course, it's terrifying putting a smartphone underwater if it's got all your information on it. But it worked great. And I didn't touch an underwater camera once. Yeah. And back up before you do that, even if they rate them for underwater, uh, I would always yeah. be so nervous about that. <laughs> I mean, my, my wife has uh, an iPhone 11. And I, I understand that, yes, I could. I won't. Um, it, it'll be great if my three-year-old decides to like spill orange juice on it or something, and I'm not yep. going to be terrified about that. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's one of those things where the, the industry is changing smartphones. I mean, even the, the book that I'm writing, I've got a, um, a, a moment macro lens, uh, that, uh, that is here in studio that I'm testing along with regular macro lenses just to kind of, uh, completely flesh out the entire, uh, platform of what you can do on any different scale. Yeah. Extension tubes to a digital SLR lens, but put this little clip on, onto your smartphone and that can work too. It, mm. it might not be ideal, but uh, it'll probably do more than most people need if they're just trying to experiment and explore and not really getting serious. So um, yeah, those uh, traditional SLRs, they're, they're going to go away. And, and I worry about companies like Rico, uh, Rico Pentax, right. when they have no platform to to build on uh, in the mirrorless world, unless they decide to like join the L mount people because they don't want to. I would not recommend them to create their own <laughs> mount at this point. That would be, uh, you know, uh, there's already too many cooks in the kitchen when it comes to the mirrorless market. Um, but companies like that might be disappearing, or at least saying, okay, well, uh, we're just going to stick to our office copiers because that's what Rico right. does best, right? I think they've got two ways to go. Well, maybe even more than two ways. But really, I think computational photography is really going to make a huge change in our market. And there's nothing to say that you can't apply that to mirrorless cameras. We've seen a few examples of that, which has been quite effective. But really, I think you know, getting into machine learning, deep learning technology, and computational photography is honestly going to be the future, if not a big part of the future of photography. And yeah. so I think companies just sticking with the classic photo platform are going to have to either evolve or die. But at the same time, these manufacturers are, are still in the lens making game. And I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to need glass optics. We're going to need lenses. So maybe companies like Pentax, Nikon, Canon, maybe these guys have a future in the lens uh, department. Your dog definitely agrees. Yes, uh, <laughs> my dog. Yeah, sorry about that. That barking. Yeah. No, no worries. <laughs> uh, but the, the lens market is something that is changing too. I mean, we have um, uh, the uh, Metacon uh, brand of lenses and the Liowa brand of lenses from uh, Zongyi and from Venus Optics. Uh, these are Chinese manufacturers that are coming in and even starting to build electronic apertures into some of their mechanical focus lenses. Right. For a lot of things, you don't need uh, autofocus. I mean, if you're doing astrophotography, if you're doing macro photography, yes, these are niches, but um, you you don't need to have the latest advancements in the technology uh, that would garner a really high quality lens from uh, Canon or Nikon or whatever brand your camera has. And these third party lenses have been getting better and better as the engineering costs go cheaper and cheaper. Don, should I take care of that dog? <laughs> <laughs> I can edit out the barks. We're on separate recording channels here. Okay. Uh, so, so long as he's not like jumping up and, and licking your face and, and barking directly into the microphone, I, I think we'll be fine. But let's get into our first story here uh, because it, we're going to get back to AI. That's kind of our second story. But right. story number one uh, is that Panasonic, uh, this is according to DP Review, those great folks over there, um, <laughs> at uh, Panasonic to sell the remaining stake in its semi conductor joint venture in face of quote aggressive competition right so um uh basically 
Panasonic has partnered with, I think it was an Israeli company, Tower Jazz. Yes. And uh, uh, this is where they were making uh, their camera sensors. And basically, semiconductors is more than just sensors. There's a lot of other stuff that are considered chips. And I'm not sure, sure. exactly what they were manufacturing. But this is a, a heated market. Uh, you know, we've got uh, issues where Intel can't manufacture processors fast enough, and AMD is taking market share from them. And then you have the uh, the, the fabs because AMD doesn't have their own foundry anymore. They mm -hmm. spun that off to global foundries, and then TSMC makes a lot. This is a very convoluted, constantly changing market. And if you are not on the absolute cutting edge of process technology and inventiveness, then uh, you're going to be left behind. Sure, And I, I think that in terms of manufacturers, there's only a few people making good sensors right now. There's Sony, Canon, Panasonic, of course, with Tower Jazz. Um, and uh, there, there might be others, but, you know, Sony is the dominant player. They really are. I mean, you know, I think that the thing to remember here with this, with this particular set story is that I think a lot of the sensors that they were developing was actually for non-photographic uh, applications. I think it was more like what ba backup cameras, automotive kind of stuff, maybe laptop, that kind of stuff. But um, but certainly, yeah, when we come to the actual photo industry, Sony dominates. Uh, Canon are still sticking by. I really did like their latest sensor, their APS-C sensor in the 90D and the M6 Mark II. But um, we have to remember that Panasonic is unlike uh, Canon or unlike Nikon, I guess, if you talk about traditional photo companies, and that they're more like Sony. They're a huge conglomerate with many different divisions, but I guess they just didn't feel like the, the money was there to, to be invested to really grow in that market. Um, I guess everybody's kind of wondering, what does this mean, though, for photo industry specifically? You know, Where is that going to go? And I think the vast majority of people are buying Sony sensors, have been for a long time. Yeah, well, at the same time, um, Tower Jazz made some inroads. I mean, they've been used in a lot of Panasonic cameras, although the mm. exact identity of who makes what sensor is kind of uh, murky. Um, yes, there was yeah. rumors that the Nikon D850 uh, used a Tower Jazz sensor as well, but there's mm. nobody that will confirm that. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, the thing about these companies uh, is Panasonic doesn't need to be a partner to benefit from the product, right? Right. They, if they find that it it's uh, it, it behooves them to uh, to to buy sensors with technology that they have licensed to patents and and, and whatever else, uh, sort of like what Nikon does from Sony, then that's fantastic. Uh, Nikon uh, and uh, other manufacturers using Sony sensors has not slowed them down one bit, and. So, uh, Panasonic did uh, demo a um, their 8K organic sensor, uh, right. I believe, and, and they're hoping to have that come out at some point in the future. I don't know who's making that. There's a pretty good bet that it would be from their uh, Tower Jazz um, collaboration, but that's still going on. I mean, that's yeah. not going to disappear. Tower Jazz has stated that they are not going to uh, you know back out of this partnership, even though uh, Panasonic sold their uh, $250 million uh, stake to Taiwan's Nubaton Technology Corp. Um, so you know, a quarter of a billion dollars is not a small amount. But if you look at the entire portfolio of stuff that Panasonic has, uh, it's 
it's more of a than a drop in the bucket, but it's like a glass of the bucket, right? Yeah, it, it's not the it's not the whole picture. Yeah, and Tower Jazz is still maintaining market share uh, control. Uh, so whatever design that they have going forward, whatever sort of market plan they have going forward, will will very likely keep going in that direction. But uh, yeah, you know, it's nice to be able to make cameras, but also microwaves and uh, computers and, uh, and the you batteries know, that are in my car, washing plus, machines. Yeah. Like, you know, so Panasonic's doing pretty good that way luckily they're very diversified i mean matsushita corporation is a huge company yeah and you know even uh, things that we don't even think of as uh, as viable markets anymore like corded telephones sure. can you believe that there's a huge market for corded telephones yeah because whenever you go to a hotel your hotel room always has a corded telephone corded within telephone, it right for sure yeah uh, and so th- there's there's all sorts of hidden behind the scenes markets that don't really face <laughs> us as consumers uh, but at the end of the day uh, we uh, we see you know companies like Panasonic uh, cornering all sorts of markets um, just not camera sensors directly anymore so that's being right. offloaded to somebody else I don't think that as a uh, as a purchaser of Panasonic cameras and equipment um, that this is going to have any significant impact on us no. uh, it's just gonna keep going along this is a behind the scenes thing that um, you know the, the 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 gusto and the uh, the enthusiasm that Panasonic has for a lot of things Let's hope that Tower Jazz uh, carries that forward and they don't lose momentum because I want to have more competition in this space. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now let's uh, let's move on to our next story, which does bring about that AI stuff, uh, which uh, also recorded by the wonderful folks at DP Review, uh, that Sony forms a new AI organization to develop new tech for cameras and more. And I think it was only a matter of time before a large corporation with many divisions decided that, hey, artificial intelligence is a big thing across many markets, and we need to consolidate everything around just one organization rather than having every separate division working on AI independently and nobody talking to each other. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, this, I it, it's, it's a super smart idea. Um, you know, they're talking about, as you say, there's many different divisions, right? I mean, there's food, there's, there's uh, medical situations, there's face detection, there's security systems, and they can all benefit from this kind of, you know, technology. Again, artificial intelligence, I know that's the buzzword. It's not very accurate. Deep learning. Like yeah, machine learning, deep learning is more accurate. But it makes sense because who's to say that whatever technology works in, I don't know, your oven might not also have some interesting interesting application for your camera. So I think it's great that they're getting together and, and um, you know, making this conglomerate. Uh, I also think it's very smart that we see a major manufacturer doing this because really, I personally believe that getting into deep learning, machine learning technology and computational photography is, as I say, the future. And the companies that really get on board now, I think are going to really excel in the future. Uh, and, you know, Sony is a big player in the video game market as well. And right. uh, deep learning can be huge in in, in that kind of uh, environment. But um, we know Sony uh, as photographers for their uh, photographic um, algorithms and focus and the fact that you can, you know, focus on animal faces now versus right. just people faces. Um, if you have this growth in AI, uh, the ability to, uh, to to focus, to render, I mean, interpolation of information uh, is a big part of deep learning. And that's not just in order to predict where something's going to be. It's also to predict what something is after the fact. You know, uh, who was it? Was it Topaz that has their uh, AI-powered uh, upscaling technology and, right. and everything else? It's affecting us on many different fronts. So 
Sony is bringing this to the forefront. Uh, I believe they said that they are going to be working on um, uh, on three projects uh, to begin with uh, in the area of gaming, imaging and sensing, and gastronomy. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know where uh, AI will really fit into the uh, gastronomical process. I think the idea is that you'll be able to just put in ingredients and your oven will then choose, you know, proper cooking temperatures, proper cooking times, right? I mean, is it difficult to put a turkey in and say, okay, I need to put this at 450 for, you know, four hours? No, but wouldn't it be amazing if you just put the turkey in and your oven said, oh, obviously a turkey, here we go. Let's roast this to perfection, right? So I think we're going to see it in that regard regard um could it also tie into things like you know advanced smart fridges which will pick out your mail plans for you and let you know what has to be ordered and then go online and order it and then it shows up your door automatically i mean i can see hundreds of patents being filed in this area once they get the technology down even if they don't want to do anything with it if somebody else wants to oh, totally. sony makes the money right exactly and that's what they're really doing right it's the same as the sensor business they just have to have the core research and development and then let other people use the technology they've been doing very very well with that well and and to that end uh, a follow-up story with sony in the headlines is that sony is now number two in digital camera sa- sales yep. as nikon falls to number three yep. now to be fair no matter which one of the big three players you uh you back you're giving money to sony right sony yep. is going to be uh, an integral component in nikon cameras uh, whether it's their sensor or other parts I saw somebody take apart a Canon Rebel and the LCD screen on the back was made by Sony, right? There you go, for they, sure. They've got their fingers in so many different things. Uh, and so it's no surprise that Sony is just taking that, the market by storm, yeah. particularly because you know, when they first started, uh, making their uh, their alpha cameras. Uh, they bought Minolta and sort of built off uh, off of that platform. But uh, they intentionally made a cheaper product uh, that had all of the bells and whistles as their competition in order to start gaining market share. And yeah, that's it's kind of the mentality of what Amazon does to some degree where they're they're not necessarily in the business to to make money. Right, they're they're in the business to outshine the competition, so that the competition is no longer there, and then Amazon is the only player in that. Right, it, it's very very smart business. Uh, you know, it's, it's much to the ire of other competitors, but <laughs> uh, but hey, if if, if that's how it's going to work, then that's how it's going to work. So yeah. Sony started with that same mentality, and uh, and and they basically have been running with that ever since. You know, always what? coming in a little bit under the competition in terms of price, but delivering as much as they pro- possibly can profits be damned they're a profitable company that's not the question it's just that they need to gain that market share and now we are seeing that next step where they are number two yeah absolutely and you know they're they're still growing right i mean will they be number one i could certainly see that being very feasible i mean look deep learning technology you know machine learning technology this has given sony I would say in an undisputed way, the, the best autofocusing capabilities of any camera. And, you know, it goes beyond just things like eye detect and animal eye detect. I mean, those are, those sound visually really cool, but just their object recognition and tracking where, you know, it's, it's using deep learning to basically remember an object, uh, track it properly and accurately and ignore all other things. I mean, it, it works and it makes the, the photographic process much simpler for the photographer. And I think that's the key thing, you know, smartphones, um, they inherently suck uh, optically, right? They inherently <laughs> yep. suck optically. And so they're using these technologies, they're using computational photography to to get past that huge 
deficit of, of having a tiny sensor, right? And um, so the, the natural thought is, well, when are we going to see these things move into larger sensors? Because then the possibilities could be uh, enormous, right? High quality sensors with image stacking, with deep learning technology, awesome autofocus, um, you know, selective creative post-processing uh, post capability. Um, we've already seen it a little bit in the Olympus flagship camera, you know, the M1X. Uh, yeah, the, I, the handheld high-res mode is, is fantastic. Right. And and the long exposure, the live ND handheld was also fantastic. And and so, you know, it's funny that Olympus came out with that. And, and unfortunately, the camera is quite expensive to do that. But I could see absolutely Sony starting to implement technology like that. And that, I think, could really reinvigorate um, photographic sales away from the smartphone again. Right. It's in, it's interesting that you, you state that because uh, I, I mentioned patents in, in some areas, but I would imagine that larger companies like Apple and Google have a truckload of patents uh, right. all covering this kind of technology because they I mean, they need to corner the market on um, on how, you know, uh, the, the latest pixel might be better than the latest iPhone and vice versa. It's always a neck and neck kind of race. Um, and so their patent portfolios are huge. And Sony hasn't really done nearly as much, no. uh, which, which means then that Sony would probably have to license the patents or get incredibly inventive to find another way to accomplish the exact same goals. Would uh, the big players in the smartphone market be willing to license said patents to Sony because that would be competition? Or maybe they don't see the regular camera market as competition at all. And I think that's more the case and that'll just pad their pockets and anybody in the traditional camera market would be able to license this stuff if they wanted to include it. Yeah, it, it's, it's a tough question. And uh, I think we don't get to see the whole space race that's really going on in the background. But uh, absolutely. And, and so again, Sony developing uh, their division of AI as one strong division. I think this is a, a very smart thing to do going forward. And I think as photographers, we benefit from the current crop of cameras on the market because you're going to have the uh, the product cycles. We've already seen them get a little bit longer and a little bit longer sure. uh, between uh, brand new iterations of technology as it becomes more expensive to make meaningful differences. Um, but it also becomes more effective to apply meaningful differences to the cameras that are already on the market today. Um, we've seen that with the animal eye detection from Sony and from Panasonic. Uh, and we're going to see that type of technology ramp up into the existing products that we have. If the companies indeed do over-provision in terms of the processing power uh, that are baked into the cameras, uh, into the silicon, so that there's a bit of an overhead, we'll be able to take advantage of that as photographers. We, we sure. saw that in the... Um, with the, uh, the Lumix G9 that has now the full video suite, well, not the full suite that the GH5 has, um, but uh, very comparable. Totally. And uh, we've got now the, uh, the, the Lumix S1 and S1R that are compatible with the CF Express cards. And I haven't tested one of those uh, yet. Uh, I was hoping one would go on sale on Black Friday. <laughs> they're, still did, so. they're still crazy expensive. They're still crazy expensive. But uh, that, again, you'll have uh, lesser bottlenecks because you've got over-provisioning in the hardware so that the software can catch up and, oh, yeah. and make us happier as photographers without having to spend more money. But that's also a problem because if we're not spending money, how are these camera companies making money and staying in business, right? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, remember, Don, way back when firmware was just about fixing a bug or adding another language to the menu? The, mean, the Epson, <laughs> was it the RD1 or something? The yeah. one that had a mechanical uh, 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 shutter uh, cock on it, which Their was digital just range really finder. cool. Yeah. The digital rangefinder. And um, that one was, uh, they wanted to do a firmware update. But they couldn't, so they had to release a new version of the camera with updated yes. firmware on it because firmware updates weren't a thing yet. How far we've come, right? <laughs> as processors get stronger in these cameras, though, and we are, as you say, it's like the G9 is a good example, but we're seeing this happen now with a lot of the cameras. I mean, the Canon EOS R and RP, for example, just got a nice update again with their 1.4 firmware that really makes their autofocus Sony-esque, you know? And and, and this is interesting that we're now seeing that, that firmware is... is maybe even arguably now more exciting than glass or sensor technology because that's really where you can make huge changes in code, add a lot of features, uh, as long as the camera has the processing power to support it. Um, that, that really effectively simplifies and, and changes the, uh, the creative process. Yeah, uh, and you made a good point. So long as the cameras can uh, can Process. handle it, uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, it's not like you know, uh, my iPhone six slowly became unusable as newer versions of iOS came out that added new features and functionality, and it just slowed down all of the older uh, older phones. And some say it's a uh, conspiracy at Apple to try and make sure that you buy a new phone so that your old one is slower and doesn't function as well. And I'm not sure if I necessarily ascribe to that. It's just that you're trying to pack so much into something that was never designed for it. Right. So you have to kind of have a balance between these different ingredients. And if you don't, well, then uh, the internet will erupt in flames. Right. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> let's just remember that manufacturers have been trying to make photography easier for decades upon decades, right? For as long as probably you and I remember photography with auto modes, with portrait modes, landscape, you know, uh, eye detect focusing where, you know, Canon follows your eye wherever you look at the screen, like all of these different attempts to make the photographic process not, not just necessarily easier, but also more successful, if that makes sense. You know, you get the photo that you're trying to get. You get the idea captured that you're trying to capture. And and I think this is just a natural progression of that. But now it's far more effective than saying, oh, I'm doing a portrait, click to portrait mode. The cameras are now going to be able to detect if you're trying to do focus stacking and say, this is a great candidate for focus stacking. Just do it. You know, this is a great candidate, obviously, for changing bokeh digitally. You know, I, I think we're going to start to see more and more of this. And uh, you can you can fight against it and say, oh, this takes away our creative power. Or you can just say this is natural progression and I'm going to get a higher success rate and hit rate. And if you wanted to do it the traditional way, you know, grab an old camera, right? Sure. I mean, uh, don't don't let the technology stop you from making the art that you want to create. It just totally. gives you more power, more options. Um, and so long as you have that control, I think it's, it's very helpful. Uh, you know, there's... Um, some settings on um, uh, like uh, an iPhone, for example, where uh, at least I forget if it, I don't think it was this generation. I think it was the previous one uh, when you would take a uh, a photo and it would unnaturally smooth out skin tones, even if you didn't have any particular feature uh, of that, uh, that that stated that it was going to do that, right? And then right. they backtracked a little bit and backed <laughs> up on that because they were uh, you know smoothing out too many wrinkles and it became kind of an unnatural effect that people did not have the control. Yeah. Uh, over. So I think that's really the, the crux of it. If you if you lose the control over things, then there's a reason to be mad. But if you're just building in 
more auto goodness for the people that care about that, then you're just going to have a wider audience for your product. Yeah, I don't think we should ever take away creative control, but I can absolutely foresee maybe losing things like ISO, maybe losing things like aperture and shutter speed. I mean, you know, these, these classic controls that we've always used, honestly, we might reach a point where they're just not necessary or or at least we don't have to interpret them the way that we have classically been interpreting them. Right. It'll, it'll transition be, it'll be there, yeah. but it might be like vestigial to the process, right? It'll be in the you know, background, yeah. Right. And, and it, it, I'm not going to say that, uh, that that will happen within the next five or even 10 years, um, because I think that we will always have the desire to have that kind of control. The same reason as, you know, self-driving cars will be a thing uh, yeah. at some point when the technology matures. But that doesn't mean that that's all we will have. Right. Right. Uh, so because everybody was going to have different tastes. You could still develop tin plates just like the Civil War if you want to today, right? But, uh, <laughs> you could. But, but, you know, why decide aperture now when I could decide depth of field later? You know, I mean, I think these are going to be real examples that we're going to start to see become more and more forefront in, in you know, enthusiast and advanced photography. Yeah, and it's a shame that uh, technologies like light field uh, cameras uh, that Lytra was producing have gone away, but it became kind of a gimmick. Maybe it was ahead of its time. Uh, it, it, if that was adopted by a, uh, a regular camera manufacturer and just added in as a feature, then I think that we might have the way that uh, you know, computationally we're approaching that, uh, it, it would have made sense. But now it doesn't make any sense because if we just shoot at f22 just you know at arbitrarily small aperture having everything in focus and figure out by uh by the brains of the camera not the brains of the photographer where to focus after the fact um then that might be good enough for some people and that's it, it, yeah. not a bad thing it's not a bad thing yeah right uh now for me of course i push a lot of limits and in macro photography i'd never have everything in focus and and there's <laughs> uh, there's challenges there but uh at the same time technology is starting to overcome some of those challenges as well i exactly. i love shooting in the the high res mode on uh, the Lumix S1R, which gives me an almost 200 megapixel image. And I don't need that. I, I nope. absolutely have no use for that resolution. But uh, what if I take 90% of that image, throw it away, and I have a very good, clean 20 megapixel image at the heart of it that was taken from a greater distance away that thereby yep. gives me a greater depth of field and I don't have to worry about focus stacking. And so that technology makes my job a lot easier and I embrace every way that I can do that. You know, and not to oversimplify the engineering that goes on behind it, but really, if you think about like a, a, a an eight frame multi shot stack, you know, to get resolution, it's really not that difficult a process to do. It's not like it's. I mean, we're talking about like you know starting fire with flint and steel right now. So you know, this technology is quite basic, and uh, who knows where it can go. Well, and so Sony has taken it a step farther uh, using, I think, 16 shots on the A7R4, yeah. uh, which, uh, if I recall, uh, it kind of does uh, the, the same thing for quadrupling the resolution, but it also would give you an RGB value for every photo site, uh, right. similar to what Sigma would do with their Foveon sensors, or at least what they've done in the past. Right. Um, yeah. So. You know, to, to carry that forward, um, we've seen step one and now step two, and Olympus might have kind of a step 
2.5 with what they're doing, <laughs> but you wrap yeah. that into this. Um, when we have, uh, and this is software controlled, right? As soon as you can move the sensor around, uh, you have the ability to start interpolating information. And this exactly. boils right back to this whole AI discussion where the advancements that can come, some of it might be patent encumbered from one company or the other, but we are going to see it roll out in some form. Uh, and hooray, as photographers, we've got more toys to play with. Exactly. Right. All right. I think we've talked that one to death, but it was fun. <laughs> um, let's get into something controversial, shall we? Oh, uh, boy. So, uh, I, I, okay. I, I looked at stories that were getting a lot of um, interest over the last week. It was a relatively slow news week. So yep. uh, judging on the number of comments, I found one on Petapixel that has over 450 comments as we record this. And it makes me uh, sad, angry, and indifferent all kind of at the same time. <laughs> The title of the story is Christian Photographer Sues City Over Law That Could, quote, Force Her to Shoot Same-Sex Weddings. Yeah. Okay, I try not to get overly political and religious on this podcast, but I mean, when it comes to uh, to human rights, I, I don't really think that that should be a, a political hot button issue. We're all people, yeah. right? You know, and I, I hate when people say, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not a a, a, a racist, or I'm not uh, I'm not a homophobe." Some of my best friends are gay. Well, I, everybody is people, okay? Some of my best friends are people, right? <laughs> 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 so, so, you know, when I see a story like this, I feel, okay, well, uh, first of all, before I get into it, Chris, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, this is, this is kind of the same situation as the, the um, person who, the baker, right. Who didn't want to make cakes for, for same sex marriages and things like that. Right. Um, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I, but, but at the same time, I guess, you know, it's important that we have these discussions. Of course, I think we feel the same way, right? I think it's, I think it's ridiculous. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I do feel as a photographer, as a creative artist, I don't think that discrimination should ever be a part of it. Absolutely not. I think that's disgusting. However, I do think as a creative artist, you should be able to um, say to a client, I don't think my work fits what you're looking for. You know, but those are two very different things. Oh, right? I mean, exactly. Because if I, if I give the example, like if I'm a portrait photographer and somebody yeah. comes along and says, hey, can you photograph my, my newborn baby? And I say, no, because that's not exactly in my area of expertise. Am I being ageist because I'm refusing to work uh, to, to photograph somebody because of their age? Well, it's kind of ridiculous, but. I, I get what you're saying in the sense that your skills as an artist have to be tailored to sure. a specific audience in a way that doesn't discriminate from anybody. Exactly. Now, if if I was uh, if if I was a gay man and I was about to get married and me and my fiance were looking for a wedding photographer, um, I would look very carefully at the portfolio of work of the wedding photographers in my area and see if they have done any same-sex marriages before, because sure. then they might know what to expect. That would be probably a better fit um, to go to somebody that had a website that was devoutly Christian and quoting uh, things from the Bible. They might be completely okay doing that, but it might, to me, just as somebody that knows how some of these people think, I might try to find somebody that's more aligned with the kind of things that I think. 
And, yeah. and that's that we do this as human beings all the time. Um, but that's me selecting somebody to do do some work for me rather than me refusing to work with somebody exactly. because of something, right? Yeah, I think it's always important for any photographer that they have a frank discussion with their clients to say, hey, what do you expect out of the shots that you're going to get? What kind of style are you looking for? I think that's always important to have a discussion about and then say, oh, I think this is going to suit me really well or, you know, maybe this is not my area of expertise. You know, I can recommend a different photographer who might be, you know, perfect for that. But yeah, it should never be a situation of discrimination getting involved. And of course, I mean, a lot of the people are saying like, oh, well, I mean, same-sex marriage couples would, wouldn't want to work with this person anyways. It really does, to me, seem to be more clearly uh, a political statement, you know, basically just saying like, look, I I feel this is wrong and I don't think I should have to do it. And I'm going to make a stink about it. And, and that's... Uh, that's, I think, more what's at the heart here. I don't think uh, I don't think people are clamoring to use this particular person's photography, regardless <laughs> of whether they're gay or straight or or whatever. So, you know, but uh, yeah, it, it is sad that we still have to go through these. Yeah, and I'm going to re- read one comment here from the comment section, which is now closed on uh, Petapixel because <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I wonder why. Um, Rob S., uh, I, I, I kind of agree with him. Uh, he, he basically says, so a, a quick look at our website, quote, established in 2016, uh, has shot four weddings, two engagements, and one birth since then, has her religious beliefs all over her website. Uh, if you were a same-sex couple and picked her, you probably didn't do any uh, due diligence. I was kind of echoing a statement like that. Um, the idea that she would be quote, forced to blog about anyone's wedding is ridiculous. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you can shoot something and not even put it in your portfolio if you didn't want to. I mean, that's your prerogative. Um, And then she calls this her, quote, side hustle. Uh, Craigslist photographer as uh, would probably have a a better website. And it seems like a pretty effective PR stunt. Yeah. And as a sad truth, I mean, if she was trying to uh, drum up some business from uh, some fairly devout religious people that believe the same things that she does, um, then this might be a very sad but effective way to do it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the important thing to remember is nobody is is really going to say that an artist is forced to do something that they don't want to do. And and at the same time, I also think if if you do have a religious belief that uh, disagrees with that, as much as I disagree with it, I do think that's your right. But yeah, there shouldn't, uh, this is, it gets blown out of proportion, right? Um, Nobody's forcing her to do it. She, uh, I think any artist can can make a decision to say, this is not going to suit me. I don't think I should be a part of this. But yeah, whatever your beliefs are, it should completely stay out of any sort of discriminatory area. Just say like, look, this is not my thing. I don't feel it. I don't think uh, it's going to work. I I don't think anyone's going to force you to do that. Right. And uh, so there we go. Uh, We have uh, artists and uh, we have clients. And you know what? It's it's funny because even in, in our last election here in Canada, there was no politician that I liked. Right. You know, it's like there were all varying degrees of not what I was after. Uh, and, and we see this with levels of artistry. We all gravitate towards you know, particular musicians. We gravitate towards particular actors that, that we like. Um, and uh, we gravitate towards particular photographers that we like. You know, there are people that I look up to uh, in the industry that I have the greatest respect for and people that I really don't care for that much. I'm entitled to have my opinion uh, of people based on the art that they create, but not based on something that they themselves have no control over. And I think that's where that dividing line is. Yes. Yep. Perfect. Um, let's let's go on to something a little bit more fun. Uh, <laughs> more I think anything more is more positive, fun than yeah. that. 
so uh, again from DP Review, um, a news that Tetanol is to offer quote Magic Box single role film development kits for testing the waters, um, which is kind of neat because Tetanol uh, was in trouble. Uh, the company makes mm-hmm. a lot of behind the scenes photochemistry that would have been you know purchased by another brand and, and used uh, with a different name on it, but they were the, uh, the 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 white box company that produced the actual chemistry. Yeah. Uh, so it was unfortunate they they were in uh, some uh, some tricky situations in terms of being able to fund production runs and you know they were facing bankruptcy and everything. Well, a lot of the employees ended up sort of buying the company so that it would stay afloat. And now uh, they were uh, tentatively looking at the time about producing some uh, consumer uh, facing products, right? Not just business to business anymore, but actually hitting the consumer's face on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're starting to do that. This magic box idea of uh, currently available only in, in Germany, but uh, let's hopefully that, that expands. If you could uh, experiment with film, say, yeah, I haven't shot film in a while. I just want to run a roll through an old camera, feel nostal- nostalgic about it. It's kind of a big jump to say, okay, well, I'm going to buy, you know, two liters of these different chemicals. And then, you know, the shelf life is not that hot. So, you know, by the time I would go through that, you know, maybe a tenth of it, I would lose out on the rest of it because it might not be effective anymore. Or once I've done one roll of film, technically that chemistry is still viable for another. Do I keep it? Do I throw it out? How do I dispose of that? I can't remember. I'm not even going to bother trying. If you could make it simple, if you could make it like a one-off simple process of say, hey, you know what, uh, we'll, we'll make it even in tablet form, right? Do you think that there's going to be a market for that? I think marketing is what this is all about, Don, because really, if you look at the chemistry, this is going to be way more expensive uh, than buying the large bulk amounts and doing it the way that we've classically done it, right? I mean, your cost per film is going to be expensive. And to be honest, nowadays, film is quite expensive, more than I remember it being. But at the same time, it makes a lot of sense for people who maybe just want to play with this or as a diversion or as a fun experiment. And I think it's good if they market it that way. My only issue with it, I guess, not really an issue, but I do still feel that developing is a very exact science. And and there's a lot to be said for using proper equipment, getting proper times, um, you know, proper temperatures, uh, how you're going to develop, how you're going to agitate it. There's a real art and science there. And I'm not saying that this product is going to take away from that. It could be a gateway drug to get people into that, which would be awesome. Um, but I think we have to keep in mind, you're going to still have to buy more equipment than just the chemistry kits that Tetanol is providing. Of course, um, you need a, a daylight developing tank. You, sure. Uh, Thermometer uh, to some degree. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're uh, black and white, it's probably not that big of an issue. No, but, um, but, uh, but you're right about it being an art form. It is a separate art form than photography. Uh, and so, like, do you do you want to rapidly develop your black and white film? Or do you want to dilute your developer and uh, and develop it over a longer period of time? Uh, which developer do you choose? Uh, right. and there's You could develop your uh, film in coffee if you wanted to. I mean, uh, I wouldn't advise that. Uh, that's way <laughs> too hipster for even me. But, uh, but you can. And, Very and so, low contrast. Very low contrast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the point of that is, though, um, do photographers today care about that art form? Because yeah. if they don't... <clears throat> then why bother? Well, yeah, and that's the thing, right? I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you don't really need to have that kind of accurate temperature. And, ah, oh, you don't really need this gear. And, you know, you can skip that. It's not a big deal. And, and I think some people are actually going to enjoy the very rough, 
I would even say flawed kind of characteristics that these kits are inevitably going to give people, you know, just because the inconsistencies on, on who's developing and what conditions and what equipment are going to change so much. And you're right. A lot of people might actually love that. They might actually really like that concept, but you, you lose consistency. And I think in the end, if you want to make it a fun diversion, you don't need consistency. If you want to start getting it into a more viable art form, I do personally feel with film developing, you need the consistency. So I hope this is, again, like I say, a gateway drug into that, but I don't think this is the answer. Right, right. And, uh, well, a, a gateway uh, to get people to pick up a roll of film for the first time, maybe in the last couple of years. Maybe they never went back to film again and they just want to feel that nostalgia because maybe that's worth it. But, uh I don't know. It's really hard to say whether or not this is going to be something viable moving forward. Uh, yeah, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be specialized. I, 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 I don't know if it's going to become a gimmick or if it's going to become a viable tool. Um, time's going to have to tell. Yeah, if I could have just, and th this is not like in tablet form, but if they do develop and they're planning on developing tabletized photochemistry, if I could have just a roll, like almost like little pills of stuff that I could just make the exact amount to develop a roll of film that has lengthy shelf life that could just sit in my cold storage room forever, uh, I would probably buy that. And I, you know what, I've got a drawer full of film right here. I might never shoot. Some of it I've shot. I haven't developed. Uh, you know, it's it's such a, like, I might get inspired to do it, and then I might just go out and buy the chemistry and develop one roll of film, and then the rest of that stuff expires. So yeah. uh, I mean, maybe their market is to people like me um, that just do it so seldomly that to, to make it convenient with that very low volume of production, um, well... Time will tell. I, I, I really hope that this actually takes off for them because I want Tetanol to be a consumer-facing company. And if they can yeah. start getting inventive into this area, um, then we'll you know continue to see that renaissance of film uh, take off. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's get into the picks of the week. But before we do, Chris, um, you know, people that uh, listen to the podcast, they've heard your voice before, uh, but they might not know um, that uh, you are on um, a, an, a YouTube channel. You're a YouTube star, sir. Um, so, yeah. So, what's uh, a weird job? Hey, I mean, people ask me, like, oh, what do you do for a living now? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a YouTube host. It's so weird. It doesn't I know. Sense. The I, world is changing. I, it I, is strange. You know, uh, <laughs> Did, did you, you have uh, children, right? I do. Yes, I've got three, in fact, which is so, why my hair is so gray. <laughs> but could you imagine by the time that they are your age, what the job market is going to look like if you can make uh, if you can make a living on YouTube today? <laughs> what is it going to be in a couple of decades? Oh, geez, I yeah, I don't even know. I, I think there'll still be waiters and waitresses, but beyond that, I don't know what our industry is going to look like. Right. So uh, anyhow, uh, people can find you um, uh, just by going to DP Review TV. Um, so that's uh, either dpreview.com and check out all of their wonderful videos. The YouTube channel is, uh, you can even just go to youtube.com slash DP Review uh, or DP Review TV. I've looked them both up and both of those links will work. So um, check out Chris's videos. He works with Jordan Drake, who's also been on this podcast a number of times. And, uh, and that will, uh, they, they make a wonderful dynamic duo. And with Chris and Jordan is what we recorded the video with when I was out in Calgary recently. Um, it's funny because when you watch your videos, Chris, you will see a, um, uh, a seasonal shift because you record them like one, uh, like two a week or so. And, uh, and that'll end up being like, you, okay, well now clearly it's covered in snow. Everything that you're recording outdoors when you're testing cameras, it's all snowy because that's what Calgary is. So it's kind of fun to see it all seasonally <laughs> shift. 
Um, anyhow, um, to find out Chris there and anything else you want to plug? Uh, well, no, I know I'd appreciate that. That's fantastic. Please check out Deep Review TV. And uh, yeah, as you say, we've got two episodes every week now. So we're doing a lot of content. And yeah, let us know comments. Let us know what kind of stuff you want to see. Uh, it's always hard to figure out. I mean, gear is easy. We know people want to see the new gear, but we're always looking for suggestions on what people want to learn about besides that what do we want you know how can we educate you what kind of stuff do you want to learn um i think podcasts like this are fantastic because we really do get to talk a lot about um the the stuff going on in the background of the industry and that's fantastic so yeah anything like that let us know but even like some of the videos you've done uh on like uh you know discussing waveforms and and how uh that can be impactful for photography even though most photography based cameras do not possess them um And, and that, that kind of knowledge, that insight is what I go to DP Review TV for. So uh, thank you for continuing to do exceptional work. So let's, uh, l- let's get into the picks of the week. And, um, and I guess I'll start here. Uh, my sure. pick is, uh, I am something of like a, a flashlight geek. I've got a, a bit of an obsession, <laughs> a bit of a problem with these, uh, partly that's because a, it's a weird fetish. Don. It's a really weird fetish. <laughs> I know I need help. <laughs> um, but, uh, th- this came across my, uh, my radar recently, um, is, uh, something that I can put in my pocket that will be incredibly bright and is catering to potentially a photography market by the quality of the light itself. Um, Nightcore is a company that I've recommended flashlights from before. Their tiny monster series uh, are their incredibly bright flashlights. This one is 2,600 lumens, uh, or actually 2,800 lumens, uh, as I'm seeing right here. The Nightcore TM03 CRI. CRI, I guess, referring to the color rendering index. Um, and it's, I'm not sure what makes it better than their other diodes <laughs> that they might be using. Uh, maybe just higher quality construction in terms of the um, uh, the way that the light is, uh, you know, beamed out so that there might not be a hot spot. It seems like it's really uh, a really even beam, really condensed and really mm. tiny. Um, and this is what I'm going to be using uh, the next chance I get to use uh, for freezing soap bubble photography, uh, which you need a really bright and a fairly narrow beam um, and something that is ultimately portable that I could use for a lot of other things too, like studio based macro photography. You want to have, if you're using continuous light, you want it to be really bright so that your shutter speed is fast enough and you can uh you know uh lower down your iso for the highest quality Mm. image now i don't know if i'd use it at 2800 lumens that's probably (laughs) overkill for most cases it's got various settings uh about half that brightness would probably be enough for most Mm. cases um in the comments on the uh the uh bnh uh website here which i will have the links in the show notes somebody actually tested the flashlight with a Seconic c700 uh, photo spectrometer and uh, it reported that it had a CRI of 92 which is pretty good pretty good uh, yeah p- pretty good up there so it's interesting uh, to think right I mean we were just thinking like why would I need a color corrected flashlight like what situation <laughs> would that be I don't need it for finding my way down a dark path but uh, yeah like we're always looking at bigger lights it makes sense if you're doing these small macro setups to have localized powerful light where you need it for for tight apertures and get depth of field so yeah very interesting it's it's not something i would normally think of as a as a photographic light well, and the, the barrel on this is small enough that it can fit inside some of the very small crab clamps um, mm. that you can get for, you know, five or 10 bucks. Um, right. 
And then with that, you can uh, screw that onto, because those crab clamps have tripod mounts, you can screw that onto a, a tabletop tripod, or uh, when I put them outside, it'll be just on a, uh, it basically turns it into a light stand, a, 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 just a simple travel tripod, uh, and it becomes infinitely positionable. Or uh, I've got some little gooseneck arms uh, from Platypod, and I can attach the flashlight to those and just infinitely flexible. Uh, we played around with those exact same setups uh, in the ultraviolet video, and they were very flexible and positional. This flashlight is about the same size as those. Um, so uh, the only problem that I think is a little bit weird is it comes with its own special dedicated battery um, that has positive and negative terminals. But on the positive side, it also has a negative terminal. Um, so I don't know why the flashlight hmm. needs that, uh, but it has it and it can't take a regular, um, uh, battery of the same size. It takes a, uh, one eight, six, five, zero battery, which is much bigger and beefier than a standard double a, but it takes hmm. a proprietary subset of that designed just for this flashlight comes with one and it'll charge in a regular charger for these batteries. Um, but, uh, you might be a little bit disheartened if you try to put a regular type of those batteries within this flashlight. Yikes. It won't work. Um, all right. What is your pick? Well, I've been playing around with uh, filters. Um, and, and, you know, as we get into winter photography here, uh, we're planning on doing some astral photography. And, you know, of course, we live in an area where we have really nice landscapes. So, I, you know, I worry about filters. I wonder, like, how long is the landscape filter still going to be around? You know, warming filters have pretty much gone by the wayside. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the ND filters, a lot of the color enhancement filters have gone by the wayside. I mean, you could even argue, do we need graduated NDs anymore? But what I still think is very exciting uh, is polarizers. We need good polarizers. Yep. And and I like good solid NDs. I still like the creative applications of making people disappear in urban landscapes or blurring water or turning lakes into mirror smooth glass or turning ocean waves into mist. And, and, and I think we still aren't at a point where we can do that computationally. So, you know, I'm hanging on to the last messages of the landscape filter system. Um, I really do like this uh, system from Haida. I've been playing with the Haida filter system. Uh, specifically the M10. Uh, it's just a really handy system. Basically, your classic screw-in filtering adapters, um, but the holder itself is really lightweight and it's not bulky. You know, I mean, I used the Lee filter system for a long time. It's a good system, but it is quite bulky. Uh, this is very sleek. I love the drop-in filter style. I like the rotational polarizers. Um, so far, it's been a really nice system. And of course, you can also then put in classic four inch slash hundred millimeter filters in front of the drop-in system. Now, hundred millimeter filters are probably going to be expensive, but at least you have that option. If you don't want to yep. use the filters that they produce, if you have a particular brand or filter that you would prefer to use, um, I like uh, breakthrough photography and, and their filters, yep. um, uh, especially for their NDs. But uh, honestly, a lot of these companies, uh, breakthrough doesn't make their own glass. They source it from somebody and hopefully yes. Haida, if you're happy with their filters and probably means they're sourcing it from a good company as well and not mm -hmm. using, um, some of the, the cheaper components. Um, it, uh, it looks great. It looks very convenient. And I think that's one of the hardest uh, bits for me with filters is convenience. Yes. Right? It has to it, be simple. If, if it's not simple, it doesn't come out of the camera bag. You know, even yeah. if it might help, <laughs> uh, it's, it might not just say, like, oh, well, I'm not going to worry about that. I'll, I'll fix it in post or, you know, polarizers, people don't 
usually think of it uh, in terms of, you know, uh, richening the colors in foliage because foliage will reflect a lot of light um, that is, uh, uh, you know, kind of lessening the saturation. Uh, if right. you're doing fall colors, you know, a polarizing filter is a huge asset. It's not just for uh, making skies bluer and water clearer and, and everything yeah. else. So, And you can always argue, like, even if you can do this in post, which you can't really for polarizers, but even if you could... Um, Using a filter can be, if it's simple and convenient holder system, way faster and way simpler than having to then do quite a bit of advanced Photoshop work afterwards. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I especially for uh, playing around with. Uh, I've got a full spectrum uh, camera, and if yeah. I could, uh, if I could get a really simple system, and I I backed one on Kickstarter recently that was kind of a flip down kind of thing, which seemed kind of neat, but I don't know how convenient that'll be, or if it'll just get mm. silly and knocked about. Um, but uh, juggling filters in that kind of scenario is the least convenient thing that I've ever really experienced in photography. Um, I don't think that uh, Hida makes a bunch of uh, uh, of drop-in uh, round filters for the, no. the unusual infrared light. But who knows? I mean, it, it seems like it would be a relatively easy thing for a manufacturer to do if they wanted to cater to an audience as that platform grows. Yes. Uh, they, they do have more than just polarizing filters, though. It's, they uh, do. That, it's interesting that you see they don't have that many filters, and I think that's just because of the market, right? Like, as I say, yeah. I mean, even graduated NDs, the cameras, uh, raw capability with dynamic range, we're starting to see a lot of those kind of go by the wayside. Um, and on top of that, of course, you could do HDR photos, multiple photos, uh, composite over each other, right? So I do think that polarizers are important. Solid NDs are still good. Um, their system does have a drop-in, for lack of a better term, just like an empty holder to um, give you the light seal that you need if you aren't using a polarizer, but you right. are still wanting to use an ND or something like that. Um, but they also have some good astrophotography photography. Uh, um, light pollution filters i'd like to play with those and, and see how that works you know especially here in alberta sometimes it's hard to get away from our disgusting glaring city lights which go everywhere you now, can see calgary from you know hundreds of miles away in some cases uh, calgary um have they done the conversion from those sodium vapor uh, really orange lights to leds yet no no so yeah. it is just this hideous orange bathed glow uh and, and you know yeah you have to drive a pretty good distance to escape that Right. And uh, again, the, these uh, filters, as you're mentioning, um, they cut a very specific wavelength of light yeah. that those uh, sodium vapor lights emit. And it's a hideous light source. It's impossible to <laughs> photograph anything underneath them because it's just terrible. Um, but if you can narrow that out, if you can cut that out of the image, it won't completely remove the light pollution from nope. an image, but it will drastically improve if those are the dominant light source from that light pollution. Here in my city, they've converted them all to LEDs. So if ah. I was to be doing this in my own backyard, those filters would be far less effective for me than they would be for you. Um, and it's one of those things where usually I'd say when you invest in a filter system, um, it's an investment. It's going to be something that's going to keep its value over a long period of time. Um, that's one of the filters that I think would be more valuable today than it will be 10 years from now. Uh, yes. Because it, the usefulness <laughs> of it is going to go away as, as things get modernized. But it's still useful today, and we're taking pictures today. So there That's right. You know, that's why I prefaced it with, you know, filters are on their way out maybe, but right now we still need them. And, you know, it's a convenient system. I like it. It's simple. It's not ridiculously expensive their nd filters have this diamond coating i don't know sapphire who knows they say they're super rugged i'm not going to hit it with a hammer to find out but uh it does seem to have nice clean color and those are good time saving things as well so you're not wasting a whole bunch of time afterwards in post 
Perfect. The Haida M10 uh, filter kit. And I, yep. I found it on uh, uh, just B&H, just as a quick search before we started, yep. uh, with a 77 millimeter adapter ring for 195 US, uh, yep. which, you know, if you're buying into a system, that's, you know, that's a pretty decent price. It's pretty uh, par for the course on high-end filter systems. Yeah. Right. They also make an M15 system, which is magnet uh, based. And that's really convenient, especially on like smaller compact cameras too. I really like that. Yeah, very cool. And uh, just to mention, my, my pick, the cost on that flashlight was one twenty nine ninety five US, uh, and it comes with a free, uh, tiny little, uh, much less intense flashlight uh, that I gave to my daughter, and she broke. But oh, uh, <laughs> but, you're but that was okay. A ten dollar Canadian tire flashlight's not going to cut it, Don. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that's what I'm saying. Ah, oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thank you, Chris, for being on again. It was a delight to have you back. I'd like to have you back more often. Yeah, for sure. Um, absolutely. Your opinions are always well received by me and by the audience. Uh, I got lots great, of compliments yeah. from the last time you were on. So thanks well, for being great. here Thank again. Thank you. And for everybody that's listening, uh, we're at the hour mark and we finished all of our stories. So we have run out of steam for this week. And so now it is time to get out and shoot. Ah, ah, ah.